Did you get your invitation? Whether you are back in grade school and the invitation was to your first Valentine's party, or whether you are advanced in your career and the invitation is to a banquet honoring the president of your company, all of us know what it is like to be included or excluded by the way we answer this question. How about an invitation from God to come and live with Him forever and ever? Have you received your invitation? Today's study presents the final invitation in the Bible. It is found in Revelation 22, 16-22, and Dave and I have titled this message, The Wedding Invitation. I'm sure you've all gotten these invitations in the mail. They always come in these real fancy envelopes, kind of the heavy-duty paper, and they usually have a special lighter piece of paper that kind of shields the precious writing. And the invitation comes, and probably most of you husbands take these invitations and you chuck them over to your wife, right? Because she's going to take care of maybe getting the gift or whatever you need to get. And yet when it comes time to head out for the wedding, it's on that invitation that you find out where the wedding is going to take place. Like this particular wedding was way up on North, Northeast Highway, 2302 Northeast Highway, Garland, Texas. So one of the things the invitation does is it gives the invitation, the dad and mom, the parents of both parties, usually send out the invitation, then they invite you to come for the wedding of their son and daughter. Then they also have the address of where you can get to that wedding. And so Mary and I were able to head out there and be able to have that incredible time. Yesterday was a time of amazing grace and a time of amazing celebration. And we were able to be there, we're able to participate in that real time of excitement because the invitations had been sent out and we received them. As we close the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation closes with an invitation just like this. God the Father sends out an invitation. God the Son sends out an invitation. God the Holy Spirit sends out an invitation. You see, the Bible begins with a garden paradise. You all know that. You've all heard the story of the Garden of Eden. The Bible starts out with a beautiful man and a handsome woman, you know, a handsome man and a beautiful woman, get it right? And they're united together. And they are declared one, and it looks like they're going to live happily ever after. But then in chapter 3 of Genesis, there's a snake in the grass. There's this horrible monster who seduces Adam and Eve. And he calls them into sin. He convinces them that the way to goodness, the way to find happiness, the way to find fulfillment, the way to find what your life is supposed to be, is you need to turn away from God and do your own thing. You need to be God in your own right. You need to decide what you're going to do, and you can turn your back on this autocratic, very restrictive person that created you. And a horrible thing happened. Adam and Eve turned away from the author of goodness and love and mercy and all that's involved in the character of God. The very first son born of Adam and Eve is a murderer, Cain. And so sin just leaps in to the human race. And our father and mother committed this horrible act of rebellion. And our very first brother in our family slays his brother. The darkness gets worse and worse as we go through Scripture. And the whole story of Scripture is a story of redemption. How in the world is God going to deal with this incredible problem of this human race that have chosen to rebel against him? 
And he has to lock them. As we close Genesis chapter 3, he locks Adam and Eve out of the garden. Lest they go in and eat the tree of life and have immortality. The idea there is what a horrible thing it would be to partake of the tree of life in a state of sin. So that you go on and on. You deteriorate forever and ever. You die forever and ever. Your body becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. But there's never no end to it. And the horror of the curse of sin just goes on and on and on and on and on. And so God, even manifesting his grace, barred man from being able to have eternal life. And so as we close Genesis 3, this garden paradise is locked. As we open up to Revelation chapter 22, we open up to the close of the book of Revelation, we've been finding out that God has reopened the garden. Only he's renovated it. He's redone it. And those of you that like things to end where they start, you like that great sense of completion. If, you, if you're a pianist that likes to have the chord put the final bass note on it, and you don't like to have things unfinished, the book of Revelation gives that kind of a thrust to the close of the Bible. Because we began with this horrible lockout from the Garden of Eden, but now the book is closing with God sending out his invitation, and there's a reopening of the garden paradise. And God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are saying that anyone that wants to come in and enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb, they may do that. So we close with some solemn words. It's almost like Jesus says, John, I want to just grab the pen from you and I'm going to speak directly to my people. And he does that in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Look at it. It says in Revelation 22, 16 that I, Jesus... I, Jesus, sent my angel, my messenger, to give you this testimony for my churches. I am the root and I am the offspring of David, and I am the bright and morning star. The word that's used for testify here is a really solemn word. If Jesus were here in the flesh today, he would say that I solemnly testify. It's the kind of thing you would do in a court of law. He said, I solemnly witness that what I'm telling you is true. And what John is telling us is that what we've been studying over the last several months in the book of Revelation is a breathed out revelation from God. You see, as you think about who can decide, like how can we really know for sure that if your name's written in the book of life, you're going to be safe? By what authority do we know that someone that just believed in the lamb that was slain, by what authority can we know that that's the accurate way? I mean, we could have some Buddhist players come in and they would give a different drama. We could have some Hindu players come in. They would have another drama. And that's a big challenge. It's across our land today. How do you know if we have a Jewish drama, they're going to present another way, like, you know, their Yom Kippur, and we've had their Day of Atonement and the Day of Asking Forgiveness. And they would have a way that by obeying the Torah and by praying and by doing acts of mercy that you can begin to pay back your, your, your load of sin. How can we know that that's not the truth? How can we know he's going to welcome you home and I want you to experience that incredible grace. But how can we know that that's true? And that's why Jesus says, I solemnly testify based upon the word of the Son of God, you can be sure that if you've received him, you've believed him, you've asked him into your life, then you can be absolutely sure based upon the authority of the Son of God that you're going to be one with the Father, one with the Son, one with the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus goes on and gives us some of his credentials because that's a very strong statement to make. And Jesus says something very interesting. He doesn't close by saying, I am the Son of God. He could have said that. 
He doesn't say that I am the, the wonderful counselor. He could have said that. He didn't say that, um, that he was the king of kings and lord of lords. He could have said that. He could have said, I am Yahweh. He could have said that. But it's interesting, as we close the book of Revelation, Jesus points out that he is, and he gives his name again. He says, I am the root of David. See that? He says, I am the root and I am the offspring of David, and I am the bright morning star. Now, as we close the book of Revelation, we read that, we go, okay, you're the root of David. You know, you are the offspring of David. You know, big deal about that. Well, this idea of being the root of David is a very, very powerful idea. If you turn back to Isaiah chapter 11, in Isaiah chapter 11, we have some very powerful passages where the prophet Isaiah talked about a great ruler that would come. And for those of us that are living in the United States of America today, and some of you might have even been influenced by the events in the Middle East, I don't have to preach at you very hard to be able to express to you that God is writing history around what's going on in the city of Jerusalem. And the big issue at stake, you know, you say, well, why in the world can't they get it together? The big issue at stake is who has sovereignty over the temple mount? Who has sovereignty over the place where the temple used to be located, where the altar, where they offer the sacrifices were? Who has authority over that? And there's a tremendous conflict over that. Because for Judaism, that is the place where King David and then his son Solomon had the temple built. And who exercised sovereign control over that temple mound is really, really important. That's important in their whole conviction. Well, the Quran spells out that it's not Isaac, a son of Abraham named Isaac, who has the right to that temple mound, but it is Ishmael. He has the right to the temple mound. And it's a, just an incredibly powerful conflict. Now, I want you to understand, these are really powerful forces within. Now, what's the answer for that? Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, I'm the one that has the right to the temple mount. I want you to know deep in your soul, there's not going to be peace on the earth. We're not going to totally solve the problem in the Middle East until we have the incredible Prince of Peace come to this planet. And the most powerful thing that you can do is to be an agent of this King of Peace right now in your world. You see, the reason that the Israelis and the Palestinians are going after each other is that neither one of them as a culture has really bowed before Jesus, the living Christ. They haven't, they haven't bowed before Jesus. The Israelis would curse Jesus, the secular Israelis. Many of the Palestinians that are, that are fundamentalist in their Islamic belief, they would curse. They would reject the idea, that, like you just sang about grace. They laugh at that grace. The lines are very clear. They're very strong. Islam is saying that you don't get saved by grace. You don't get saved by receiving Jesus into your heart. You get saved because you obey those five pillars of Islam. And hopefully, in the afterlife, you'll be able to demonstrate to Allah that you have, have been a good enough Islamic person. It appeals to your self-discipline and to your pride. Orthodox Judaism will appeal to your ability to obey Torah and to read Torah every day and to make it your lifetime of study and your lifetime of application. And it will challenge you to be committed to the Torah. There's not going to be peace as long as we have that stress 
upon. I reject the gift that God wants to give me, and man is going to struggle across this chasm. We're going to do it through Islam or through Judaism or any other man-made religion. Jesus is saying that he stands above all that, that he stands as the root that Isaiah prophesied. If you look at Isaiah chapter 11, look what it says there. In Isaiah 11, the prophet says, a shoot will come up out of, this, out of the stump of Jesse. The roots of the branch will have fruit. It says the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and the spirit of power, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the reverent fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 is predicting that there's going to be a son of David. What Isaiah is predicting, it's going to look like the Davidic house has ceased to exist. It's going to look like they've gone into oblivion. It's exactly what happened during the intertestamental period. I mean, the house of David went from being great monarchs in the ancient Near East, like a man like King Solomon, a king like King Solomon was world-renowned. Some of even some of the other kings, like Hezekiah, had ambassadors come from Babylon to to, to look at the wonders of Hezekiah's kingdom. And and they were even coveting the, the large treasures that he had in his palace treasuries. They went from being a Hezekiah and a Solomon to being like Joseph, Jesus' half-father, was only a, a, an artisan. And no one hardly knew him. They didn't even know really what, hardly what line he was from. During the intertestamental period, the Davidic line became like a root. It was in dry ground. It's just exactly like a tree, like there's like crab apple tree in our backyard, and, and it died. So I cut it down. Just cut it down. And man, I tried to cut it as close to the ground as I could. It used to be a great big tree about maybe four inches wide. And I just cut that thing right down to the ground and tried to put some dirt on the stump. You know, you could look at that thing and there's nothing there. If you didn't know the crabapple tree was there, you'd, there's just ground there. But you know what? With all the rain we had this past spring, and boy, I wish we'd get some more of that now. With all the rain we had this spring, suddenly a root came up out of dried ground. A shoot came forth on that crabapple tree. In fact, I just let it go this summer, and now the thing's like a big bush just exploding. But that's the imagery that's used here. It's saying it's going to look like the house of David has been buried. It's going to look like they're dead. It's going to look like God's forgotten about his program. And then suddenly, when you least expect it, a shoot's going to rise forth. That's what Isaiah the prophet is predicting is going to happen. A root's going to rise up in dry ground. If you turn over to Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah does something really interesting with this later on in his passage. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, Isaiah 53, 2. Later on, he roots this root coming up out of dry ground, this idea of someone that you'd least expect coming into powerful position and influence. In 53, 2, this famous passage that we've studied many, many times, It begins like this. It says, he grew up before the Lord like a tender shoot. He grew up before the Lord like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty. He had no majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And this is the famous passage that culminates in that incredible verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned our own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of his soul. And I want you to feel the power of this. Isaiah is writing 800 years before Jesus Christ. 
He's predicting in the days of Hezekiah that I was just talking to you about, in the days when the Babylonians hadn't even come to power yet, in the days when the Assyrians were challenging all the ancient Near East, 800 years before Christ, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord just moved within him and moved him to write these incredibly powerful poetic words that out of the root of Jesse, there's going to come the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 53, he's moved to describe that this root, this branch that comes out through the line of David, is going to be the one who will take all the sins upon himself and he will give his life in order to atone for those sins. 800 years before Christ came, Isaiah was prophesying like that. We can now look back upon that. And the word of God in the book of Revelation is closing. The book of Revelation is closing by saying, Jesus himself is saying, I want you to know that I'm the root out of dry ground. I'm the son of David that appeared when you least expect me to appear. And I didn't come as a great king the first time, but I, I came the first time as this lowly, gentle savior. I want you to feel the power. You see, you live in a world, I live in a world where that's exactly what's happened in history. That's exactly what's happened in history. There was a son of David that came. He wasn't recognized by his people. He did rise up in dry ground. And now the book of Revelation is closing by saying that he is the one who has the right to all the Davidic promises, that he's the one that fulfills all the Davidic dreams that God gave the great Old Testament prophets. Now that's one of the names that Jesus takes. And I want you to feel the power of that. Why do I believe that you can just receive Jesus into your heart and just like that you can become a child of God? I believe that because he is the son of David that fulfilled the promises that Isaiah said. And it's mind-boggling that Isaiah could predict that there would be this career where a man that was a son of David and the son of David would go into obscurity and be cut down and look like they didn't even exist anymore. And then suddenly there would be a man that was born in obscurity, but somehow, some way, he would revolutionize, transform the entire world. And that's the world we live in. This obscure son of David, you either curse him or you bless him, but Jesus is the most renowned name in all of the world. That's just the truth. And Isaiah tells me why. And the book of Revelation closes with its great, great root out of the stump of David who has now sprouted forth and he's now coming to us and he's saying, I solemnly testify to you that what you've read in this book is the truth. If you build your life on it, your life's going to go straight towards the heavenly blessing that God has for you. Second of all, he says, I'm the bright and morning star. How many of you have ever been captivated by Venus? You go out, you know, a different time of the year. It's often the morning star when you go out and you can't see any other star, but you see this incredibly bright Venus. I know back in New Jersey where I was raised, it was so foggy from New York and everything and the lights everywhere, man, about the only star you could see half the time was Venus. In fact, you know, Venus at some time of the year, just, it's just incredibly bright. Well, the Romans and the Greeks liked to look upon Venus as the victory star. So a Roman general that was a great conquering, mighty, you know, overthrower of the world would call himself, you know, the son of Venus, the son of the star. 
In fact, the Jewish leaders picked up on this. In their big revolt in 132, that Bar Kokhba, the Jewish false messiah, that day, he claimed the title, the son of the star. You say, well, Dave, where did he get that from? Turn to Numbers 24. Numbers chapter 24. This is the story of Balaam. Balaam is the prophet that really just does prophecy for a quick buck. He's, a, he's everyone's worst dream of a, of a pastor because he, he'll just come. If you pay him big money, he'll come and do his thing. That's the idea. Balaam is a really weird character because God almost kills him. You know, God almost killed him with an angel. He talks to him with a jackass. And when he finally gets there, the Lord finally tells him, okay, go ahead and prophesy. And the king, the Moabite king, brings Balaam up, and there's millions, you know, a couple million people strewn out over there. And the idea of this thing is Balaam's supposed to get up there and just curse the, you know, curse the life out of these two million Israelites. And so Balaam gets up and he tells the king before he does it. He says, you know, I says, I you know I'm a materialist and you know why that I'm in this for money, but I want you to know when the Spirit of God comes upon me, I don't control it. I, you know, and I speak. And so he does it. Well, man, they go through this three times and man, the king is ready to kill this guy because every time he gets up there, he doesn't pronounce a curse. He pronounces a bigger and bigger blessing. It comes to the fourth time, the fourth oracle of Balaam, and here he goes again. I mean, he does his prophetic thing. The Spirit of God comes upon him. He goes into his revelatory message. And look what he says in 24, verse 17. A star is going to come up out of Jacob. A scepter is going to come up out of Israel. Where does that come? What is it talking about? It's talking about the fact that there's going to be out of the nation of Israel, somehow, some way, there's going to arise a great, mighty prince. And what Jesus is doing at the very end of the Bible, he's saying, I'm that star. My birth was announced with a star. And now we're closing the Bible. And the star is saying, I am Jesus Christ. I am the bright morning star. To a Roman Greek culture, he's saying, I am, I am the great general that's going to conquer all the forces that come against me. And so that is the, that's the reason, deep in my heart, why I've accepted the promise of Jesus that he can deliver. He can deliver me the eternal life that he promised. He can give me this gift that he's promised to give me. Now, in the next verse, we have the spirit and the bride of Christ, the church family, the body of Christ. And in John's day, it was a, just a new developing body. In our day, we've had 2,000 years of history. But we have an invitation. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And this can be directed both ways, I believe. It's, it's, it could go back and forth. Is the Holy Spirit in his church saying to Jesus Christ, we want you to come? That's one way we can take it. And I think that would be very valid. It's one of the things that I've really stressed, and we need to pray as a church family that we hunger more and more for the coming of the Lord. And I've been challenged by the book of Revelation to make it my prayer. Like, as I'm watching what's going on in the Middle East, how it needs to move us to make another prayer, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Because that's the ultimate answer for the, for the son of David, the root out of Jesse, to come and to claim ownership over that temple mount. You can certainly see how the scenario could be set up. Man, you should be standing on your tippy toes. You could easily see how a great, powerful Western leader, someone that kind of rises up out of obscurity, that suddenly comes up with an ingenious answer to solve this thing. 
Maybe like, let's build two holy places. Leave the Islamic stuff here and let's let the Jews build a temple and we'll get everybody together. You can all have access to it. You could think how someone could easily do that kind of a thing and wham, we'd be right in to the events of the tribulation period. And I think we're going to be taken away before we really get into the seven years of tribulation like we've taught you. But boy, you can sure see in the headlines that the scenario, that's like the stage could so easily be set for all that we're talking about. And our attitude toward that needs to be, come Lord Jesus. The spirit and the bride say, come Lord Jesus. But another way you can take this is there's the spirit and the bride are saying, come. Because the last invitation is sent out to those that are thirsty. We have, as, as the text proceeds further, it says the spirit and the bride say, come. It says, let him who hears, let him who's reading this book, or let John the apostle who's heard the revelation, let him say, come. And then it says, whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him come and drink freely from the gift of life. That's an incredible promise. What it's saying, I believe that the Holy Spirit through the bride says, Lord Jesus, we want you to come. John receives a message. He says, I want you to come. But then John puts our eyes not just on the vertical relationship, but he puts our eyes on the horizontal needs around the world. He says, anyone who's thirsty... Come on and drink. Let anyone who wants to come, they can come and drink freely from the water of life. That's another passage from the Old Testament. Isaiah 55 said, why should you buy drink that doesn't satisfy? Why should you buy food that will never meet your need? He says, come and eat and drink freely. And it's like an invitation to the celebration of God's messianic kingdom. And so Jesus is once again bathed in Isaiah Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah. When Jesus talked to the woman at the well, she was coming to the well to drink. But in reality, what Jesus knew is that Jesus was like a lot of modern people. She was like a lot of your friends. She was coming to the well of sexuality again and again and again and again. That's why she had all those husbands. She was trying to get her life to hold together. She figured, man, if I can just get the right man, if I can just get the right relationship, man, then I'm going to find what life is all about. Man, that's a hunger that a lot of your friends are going to have this week. There's a whole lot of your friends are saying at high school, man, if I could only get that right boyfriend, if I could only get that right girlfriend, if I could only get in that right relationship, then my life would bubble. My life would be exciting. My life would be real. There's other ways that we try to satisfy our longings. Some of you say, man, if I could only get that right position at work, that right career, if I could only get that position, if I could get accepted at that school and I could be recognized to be somebody, then I'm going to really be somebody. Some of you say, if I could just only write those books, if I could only use my creative talent and, and really be all that, that I can be as a creative artist, then I'm really going to be somebody. We look across the world, all of us have different ways that we try to drink something into our life to satisfy us. And the modern world has all kinds of quests. You can watch television, you can read the paper, you can read the magazines. And one of the things I'd like you to do is start thinking about what are they telling us we should live for? One of the major things they're telling you we should live for is the material things. One of the things that Satan wants to tell you is he can satisfy you now. He can give you a drink right now. He can give you a material thing, a physical experience, some travel place, some career, somehow, something. He can give you something now, and you'll be able to drink it, and you'll be totally satisfied. 
And brothers and sisters, that's the biggest lie that he's telling the whole American public, and we tell it to the entire world, but it's a lie. You can go, you can have every house, you can have every car, you can have every job, you can have every relationship you ever want, and it's never going to be a drink that will completely satisfy you. Ernest Hemingway, brilliant Chicago-born artist, one of America's leading, leading writers. He wrote the classic book on World War I. I mean, just stirred, sold millions upon millions of copies and a farewell to arms. As a young man, he just captured the ethos of the agony of World War I, an incredible writer, one of America's greatest. And he lived for what I'm describing. He lived. He was born as a kid in Chicago. He heard the gospel. He heard the gospel. His parents were very rigid, though, not like as we've stressed grace. His parents didn't stress the amazing grace. They stressed more the hard-nosed righteousness and legalistic standard everything. And this artistic personality, as often happens in that kind of environment, just rebelled against it. And he chucked the legalism, but he also chucked Jesus as well. And he went out and he became an avid sportsman. Like, if you want the ultimate man's man, Ernest Hemingway is a man. He trout fished in Idaho, and he would go big game hunting in, in Africa. I remember my own dad, you know, talking to me about the big magazine spreads where they'd have Ernest Hemingway on another one of his big African outings. I mean, he was the ultimate expression of a Western American man. He got into his 60s. He had drunk every fountain that this life can give. He had drank from every well. He was a multimillionaire with his writings. He had had any number of beautiful women. He had traveled to every part of the world. He had done every kind of exotic game hunting you could do, every kind of exotic fishing you could do. He lived in Idaho in the mountains. He could just walk out his front door and go trout fishing. One day in his early 60s, he went up into his room after going out by that stream, and he put the butt of a gun against the floor, and he put the other end in his mouth, and he blew himself into eternity. He says, ha ha, death. I'm not even going to let you take me. What answer is that? He says, ha ha, you know, I'm the ultimate modern man. Even death can't have control over me. And he blows himself into eternity. Ernest Hemingway desperately needed to understand that you can only find a drink at where the book of Revelation is telling us you can drink, the fountain of living water. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand, if you have received Jesus into your life, you have received the eternal fountain of eternal bubbling joy and life. In my own Christian life, there's times when I don't let that fountain bubble. There's times when I wonder whether or not it's there. Jesus came to live in my life when I was five years of age. He's still in my life. And he's stronger in my life today than he was when I was five. He's producing more life, more joy, more peace, more eternal hope. I want you to know Jesus is coming through for me. And I can look back over experiences that I felt it was going to crush out that fountain of living water, but Satan couldn't do it. Because Jesus bubbles forth, keeps bringing renewal. There's times when you start to wander away and Jesus grabs a hold of you and he pulls you back. 
what we need to understand is that Jesus alone is the fountain of living water. And what we need to communicate with our friend, one of the most powerful lies that Satan tells them, he tells them that Jesus is not the fountain of living water. He's not a refreshing drink. He's a good person. He's a righteous person. But he's not the author of love and joy and real lasting happiness. If you really want to have fun, if you really want to have a fulfilling and really exciting life, you need to go Satan's way. That is a lie. Jesus alone stands in a class all by himself as the fountain of living water. John Piper has built a career talking about Christian hedonism. John delights in taking words and uniting them in strange ways, kind of to shock us, to get us to listen. And John's, one of his basic, most fundamental ideas is that one of the biggest lies that Satan tells us is that Jesus will take away all your pleasure. That you, you come to Jesus, Jesus will take away all your pleasure. He talked about how in his own life, you know, he wrestled with that. He said he knew as a young person he wanted pleasure. He wanted to, to experience life. He wanted life to be good, and he, he wanted to enjoy life. And it just seemed so crazy. Like, here the choice seemed to be, if I choose Jesus, then I don't have any pleasure anymore. And then it dawned on him. He began to read verses. In your presence, there are pleasures forevermore. I am come that you might have life, that you might have it more abundantly. He that cometh to me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And here the entire revelation of God is bubbling forth saying, anyone that comes, let them come and drink. Why do they need to come and drink from Jesus? Because if you drink from Jesus, you will have found the one source of life that can bubble forth into a life that will give you pleasure forevermore. Does it mean that you never have problems? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means you have the refreshing water to get you through the problems. Does it mean that you're never sick? No, there's times when you're sick, but you have the refreshing water that will heal you of every one of your physical diseases until he finally cures you and takes us home to be with him forever and ever. Jesus is the ultimate living water. And Jesus never leads his dear children to end with a shotgun in their mouth. That's the incredible wonder of Jesus. Instead, you can grow old and grow stronger in your inner soul. And, and Paul will even talk about the power of his inner spirit. Though his outward man is wasting away, his inner spirit is getting stronger and stronger and stronger as the refreshing living water flows upon it. Oh, how we need to get that message out to the world that Jesus is the source of everlasting pleasure. He closes by giving a severe warning. He says, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. He tells them, if anyone adds to this book, who adds to the writing of this book, or if they take away, he says that God says that if you add to the book, he says, I will add to your life the pledge of this book. And if you take away, he says that he's going to remove your place in the holy city and you're going to remove your right to the tree of life. Now, those are incredibly powerful, very strong curses. Why, after all this blessing, does he say that? Those words come almost right out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. And it's almost like John is saying, the Old Testament people, when Moses, their founder, gave the book of Deuteronomy, which closed the Torah, Moses told them, these words are your life. If you obey them, you're going to live. If you reject them, you're going to die. They were inspired words. They're canonical words. 
They're the standard of God. It's like in the superintending ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now we're at the very last book of the Bible. In fact, Revelation was the last book that really got full acceptance among the early believers. And it's almost like the Holy Spirit is powerfully guiding to give a very strong statement. This is my inspired word. And anyone who adds to it is going to be adding to the judgment that's going to come upon their life. If they take away from it, they're going to lose. I'll take away their right to the tree of life. What is he saying? He's saying, if you want to have eternal life, you've got to believe every line, every statement of this book. You've got to accept the message of the book. Deuteronomy 4 is a challenge to obedience. Basically, it's a challenge to the Israelites to be obedient to what Moses is saying. John closes the book by giving you a challenge to obedience. The big challenge as we close the book of Revelation is we've read every word of this book. We have gone through it. We've talked about it. We've studied it. We've tried to apply it in our life. Now the big challenge is, will we let it be the authority of our life? Will we be obedient to it in our daily life? Will we accept the fundamental message of the light of this book, that Jesus is the Savior, that he is the one that can give us eternal life that will last forever and ever? I want you to know that one of the great evidences of church history is, is that the early church copied this book over and over again, even though it had some such strange visions, and sometimes it was debated, and great scholars in, in, in the Christian world during the first century and then the second century debated about it. But the churches kept understanding as they read these words, the Spirit of God is speaking to us. So then in, the, in 367, the Bishop of Alexander, Athanasius, was able to write his Easter letter. He wrote his festal letter for Easter. And when he wrote out that letter, he wrote out all 27 books, and they're exactly the 27 books of our scriptures. And his letter was not what ordained and said, these are the 27 books that are accepted. What Athanasius was doing was he was expressing what had become the common knowledge throughout the ancient world that these are the books in which the church of Jesus Christ has heard the voice of God. And they're inspired scripture. They're breathed out by him. You say, Dave, why do we believe in these 27 books? Because it happens to be that in history, if you think of God spoke, he anointed John to write these words, John sent them to the church, they copied it. There were many letters written, many books that were written. But all the 27 books that are in your New Testament, the 39 books that are in your Old Testament, all of those books were carefully preserved and, and as God's Spirit caused the church to respond to their message, Athanasius was able to write around 367, these are the books that the New Testament people, that the, that, the, that the Church of Jesus Christ accepts. That's why in our church family, every time we meet together, we begin in Genesis and we move to the book of Revelation. They were not authoritative because Athanasius said they're authoritative. They're authoritative because from the very beginning, God's voice was speaking through them. But because God's voice was speaking through them, it's certif it certified and guaranteed that they would be preserved, that they would be recognized by the church. And that's why we have this precious book sitting in our lap. He closes again by saying, he says, he who testified to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. So Jesus says to us, I'm coming soon. It could be today. Amen. And our response, Jesus says to us, yes, I'm coming soon. And all of us should respond, 
come, Lord Jesus. Let's do that. Jesus says, yes, I'm coming soon. And our response is, let's try it a little bit better. Jesus says, yes, I'm coming soon. All right. And then he clothed us saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. He clothed us with grace. The Bible is about grace. The Bible is not about challenging the self-performance. It's about receiving this incredible gift of the water of life. If you've never received that gift, if you don't know for sure that you have this living water bubbling up in your life that we often sing about, if you're not sure that you've taken Jesus, this root of David, this branch of David into your life, I want you to know you can receive him even now as we close in prayer. Anyone that wants to, that's the incredible thing, anyone that wants to can freely come and drink. Oh, Lord Jesus, I'm just so thankful that you sent your wedding invitations out to anyone that would come and drink. Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that those that come and drink have this fountain of living water created in their soul. We pray that your spirit would make these words powerful in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would powerfully protect us from having any young person like an Ernest Hemingway with incredibly gifted genius, and yet they harden themselves against the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus, and they end up never finding that incredible gift of the water of life. I would ask you, Lord, that instead that you would help every one of our children, our young people, and our adults to listen to the solemn testimony of Jesus, the authoritative word of the son of David, of the star from Israel. I'd ask you, Lord, that we would realize that these prophecies make it absolutely certain that we have trusted the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. We do ask you, Lord, to come. We're anxious for you to come. Maybe it will be today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.